And the verse is Hebrews 13, 8, which simply says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And most of you probably have heard that verse before. Some of you have probably quoted it in conversation. Um, but when we quote that verse, it's obviously a powerful verse, but, but we usually quote it just by itself without any of the surrounding material. And so I, I was thinking recently, you know, you can usually learn a lot about a verse by looking not just at the verse itself, but by looking at some of the verses and some of the material around it. In other words, by putting it in its context. And so I thought, you know, it would be great to take that verse and look at exactly where it, where it falls in the Bible and, and what's around it, and maybe it'll mean more to us even if we do that. Uh, and so I thought I would do that this Sunday. In that spirit, let me just read you the whole passage that contains Hebrews 13, 8, which is, of course, Hebrews 13. So you can turn there if you like, Hebrews 13. And I'm going to start at verse 1 and go right through to verse 16. And so verse 8 will be basically right in the middle. So Hebrews, toward the end of the Bible, about five or maybe seven or eight books from the end, actually. And then 13 is actually the last chapter of the book. Starting in Hebrews 13, 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, Obviously, there's a lot of good stuff there, and there are some verses that you just heard that you probably didn't know were in Hebrews 13, and you didn't know where they came from. But I'll be honest with you, I, I was kind of disappointed on my first attempt to, to really place verse 8 in its context, because if you read through this, the passage seems at first glance to be kind of uh, random, right? Kind of a potpourri of all sorts of different things that are sort of thrown together by the author at the end of the letter, as if he's like, you know... I'm done with these 12 chapters, and there's some stuff I forgot to say, so I'm just going to put it in somewhere in chapter 13, and then we'll, we'll use that as a tag and, and then kind of close things down. Um, the connections are not very obvious here. It does seem a little bit of, of, of a potpourri of stuff, but you know what? There, there's, a, there's an author behind the author, right? An author with a capital A behind the author with a small a. And as I read 
the words of Scripture, it, it occurs to me that the author with a capital A, the Holy Spirit, doesn't usually just throw things together for no reason. And while it isn't always that important to identify the context, and it's not always that closely tied together, I thought, you know, what if we dig a little bit deeper? I think we'll find something. And, and when we do, we're going to find some pretty powerful principles, I think, for living what I would call confident, faith-filled, meaningful lives. Confident, faith-filled, meaningful lives in, in what seems to be, right now, an increasingly meaningless and unstable time. So that would be a good thing. Let me give you a little bit of background about the, the people receiving this, this letter. Th these Hebrews, you know, the book is to the Hebrews, and obviously it's written to Christians or to people who are professing Christ. So these are Jewish, for the most part, are Jewish Christians. Today we call them Messianic Jews. They're actual descendants of Abraham, um, but they're following Jesus. And these Jewish Christians, at the time this letter was written, were in a very scary situation, in a very unstable, unpredictable situation. One of the big reasons that the, the book of Hebrews was actually written was to encourage these believers not to give up on Christ and to go back to traditional Old Testament Judaism. Because Christ, and the author goes to great lengths to prove this throughout the book, that Christ has replaced this old system of laws and sacrifices, etc., etc., with a new way of following God. And so he is calling these believers to, 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 to stop looking at the shadow and to look at the reality, who is Jesus. That's really the theme of the whole book. But this is really a risky thing. Because even though the Jews were not the most popular people in the Roman Empire, at least the Jews had a recognizable religion that everybody kind of knew what Judaism was. The, the Jews had been around for a long, long time. In fact, it's possible that that religion was really the oldest one in the whole empire. People knew who the Jews were, and they knew something about their religion. Christianity, on the other hand, at this point, which of course had come out of Judaism, but Christianity was what we would today call a cult. That's how everybody thought of it. It was a dangerous, kind of weird, fringe movement that nobody really understood. Christians, as a result of this, were being persecuted. And as it's evident, even from this letter, even the part we read, some of the believers had actually been put in prison for their faith. And this was one of those times in the church when you never really knew when that knock on the door was going to come at midnight. And it was going to be the authorities, or it was going to be somebody wanting to take somebody away, or somebody wanting to do you harm because you were following Jesus. And you could lower your chances of persecution greatly if you just kind of cooled it on the Jesus thing and went back to celebrating and observing some of the Old Testament practices of, of Judaism that were no longer necessary for Christians. Because at least then you'd kind of be in the mainstream somewhere. And so that was the temptation. People were wanting to go back to doing things the old way. And in the midst of this season, we see the author here in, in, in chapter 13, in very practical, down-to-earth terms, he is, he is telling his readers here what it looks like to live the Christian life, especially in terms of our relationships. And if you think about it, there's a certain amount of risk involved, a certain amount of exposure involved to danger in really all of the commandments that he, that he gives them in, in this chapter. Let me just run through a few of them for you so that we can get an understanding of this. In times of fear, in times of uncertainty, 
the default response for most people is to kind of lock the doors, hang out with the people that are safe, circle the wagons around your family and make sure that everyone is protected, right? You feel that? But here in verse 2, what does the author say? Don't give up on showing hospitality. So he says, unlock your doors. Share your home. Share your food. Open up your life. Take risks on reaching out to people you don't know that well. The word hospitality literally means love of strangers. And that's what Christians were called to be and what we were called to do. Even in fearful and insecure times when you didn't really know who you could trust, that was still there. Verse 3, it was also risky to visit the people who were in prison. Because when you openly identified with these incarcerated believers, that would put you under suspicion yourself. In fact, the church, it seems, had already been burned by this kind of thing at least once. If you look back at chapter 10, you'll see that a lot of them had had their property confiscated. Quite possibly connected to the fact that they'd been visiting these Christians who were in jail, and so they had been identified with them, and they'd been fingered by the authorities as well. Dangerous. And as you know, when life is really uncertain and when things are kind of all going kind of, you know, um, out of the routine and you don't know what tomorrow will bring, it can be tempting to give up on your commitments, to give up on your commitments to other people and to not enter into any new commitments with other people because you just don't know what you can do. But in verse 4, the author speaks of one particular commitment that is really important, and he says, look, don't give up on marriage. Don't give up on marriage. Keep it holy. Keep it pure. Keep it faithful. Keep holding it in high honor. Christian marriage has always been something, a symbol of something that is more exalted, which, which is something that is unchanging and eternal even when everything else changes, and that is the love of Jesus Christ for the church, the people of God. And so we are called not to give up on marriage and not to give up on our marriages even in tough times because God will honor that which calls attention to the love of Christ. If you're married today or thinking about being married someday, remember your your love and your marriage is founded on the eternal love of Jesus and that your commitment to sticking with that marriage is a picture of Jesus sticking with you. Skipping ahead now to to verse 13, we'll go back to some of the other verses in a few minutes. But these believers are told to go to Jesus, it says, outside the camp and be willing to bear the shame that he endured when he suffered the agony of the cross outside the gates of the city, outside the gates of Jerusalem, which is where Calvary was. In other words, you don't need to worry about your reputation with this world. We, We Christians should not be afraid to be treated like outsiders Because at the end of the day, that's really what we are. So we might as well, while we're out there, reach out to the other outsiders of the world, right? The unpopular, the poor, the people who aren't so well connected, the ones outside the camp. You know, back in the Old Testament, that might have been the lepers and people like that. The Christians reach out. That's not always easy to do, is it? None of this stuff is easy to do. So the question arises, as we look at chapter 13, how can people live like this? How are people supposed to do this? How are Christians freed to make these kinds of decisions and commitments and sacrifices in their relationships? What enables us to take these risks? And here's where I think it will actually be helpful to take context into account a little bit and maybe take a peek backwards into chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12, because chapter 12 is really the conclusion to the whole book of Hebrews, and it's the author is kind of summing up his remarks and his whole argument for the book. For now, let me just read verses 25 to 29. We'll work backwards. 
says this, see this chapter 12, 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, and he's talking about the Ten Commandments here in Exodus, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Some of you are like me, but I'm one of those people that gets songs stuck in their head really easily and they don't leave. And as I was preparing this message, there was a song that kept getting stuck in my head and going through my head as I prepared the sermon. And it's an old song I hadn't heard in a long time. It's actually an old rock song by uh, Russ Taft, if anybody remembers him. He was a Christian contemporary artist back in the... He's not so contemporary anymore. It's about 40 years old. But the song that kept going through my head was called Shake. And the lyrics of the song go like this. All that can shake will shake. All that can quake will quake. To break the fact from the fake... All that can shake is going to shake. And that doesn't sound real profound, but that was what was going through my head as I was preparing. And so I thought, maybe if I name the sermon that, the song will go, out, go away, but it didn't. <laughs> I am not going to perform it for you because it would be very embarrassing for me and Rust Taft. Um, there's a lot going on in these verses at the end of chapter 12, but the idea is that God shakes things up. God shakes things up. When he gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments, in the time of what we call the Old Covenant, the law, he, he shook the whole mountain. The mountain shook. There was all sorts of crazy fireworks around this, but everything shook. And, and God says there's a time in the future in conjunction with the New Covenant, the covenant of Jesus, the covenant of grace, where God is going to shake things up even more. He's not just going to shake the earth. He's going to shake the earth and the heavens, so everything's going to get shaken. God will shake up the whole world, and all that, is, all that can shake is going to shake. The, and I, I guess I think of it this way when I think of last year. The, the rumblings of 2020, when a lot of things got shaken up, should at least remind us of that fact. In fact, I thought it was kind of funny. We actually had an earthquake last year, remember? It was in August, August 9th. I was here practicing my message, and I, I felt the building shake a little bit. And that was, I've never felt an earthquake before. But that reminds us that there are a lot of things that seem really, really stable that maybe aren't as stable as we had supposed them to be. Our health care system was shaken last year. Most of all in the most populous city in our nation, New York, but, but in other places as well. Our economy was shaken in a way that we probably haven't seen it shaken in about a century. Our system of government even was beginning to maybe rattle around and, and shake a little bit and kind of show its age, you know? I mean... One thing we could always count on was that America was a stable country, right? We don't do revolutions. We don't do riots in the streets. We don't do mobs storming the Capitol or, or the state houses. We just don't do that stuff. But now all of a sudden we've seen that it can happen. And on top of that, for the first time I can recall, we now have people openly questioning the very origins of our nation and kind of kicking at the foundations of the republic. Is America unshakable? What if it isn't? I think we need to look at verse 28 that we read recently here in chapter 12. And, and to me, this provides the backdrop for all these commands in chapter 13 because here we find the promise. 
Here we find the rock-solid Bible truth that frees us to live in the sacrificial, unselfish, risk-taking ways that we see talked about in chapter 13. Here's what it says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can not be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And that acceptable worship with reverence and awe, to me, speaks of everything in chapter 13. Now, we're going to talk a lot more in future weeks about this thing called the kingdom. We haven't tried to define it yet, and it might take us several weeks to do that even. But we Christians, I'll tell you this, we Christians, followers of Jesus, are part of this kingdom. And it isn't that much of a spoiler alert for me to tell you that the kingdom is partially here now, but it will be totally here one day in the future. And here, in Hebrews, this kingdom is described as something that, in contrast to everything else in this world, cannot be shaken. Cannot be shaken. You see, sometimes God shakes up the world and everything in it, but you also know that sometimes he just shakes up your life, right? Your individual life. He shakes up maybe your family, maybe your relationships, maybe our plans, our church. I mean, our church was shaken up last year. I look back at the annual report from 2019 That would be a funny exercise to do, by the way. Look back at the annual report from 2019. Look at the future plans for 2020. I don't see any references there to removing the garden of prayer, buying streaming equipment, being on the internet, canceling Sunday school, telling people to wear masks, and I'm pretty sure the word Zoom does not appear once in my report. What about your life, though? I mean, whether it had anything to do with 2020 or not, What has God allowed to be shaken up in your life recently? Your finances? Your family relationships? Your love life? Your health? Your job? The course of your education? Your plans, dreams? God does this. Wait, did you say God does this? God does this, listen, not to hurt you, but to make sure that the thing that you are clinging on to the tightest for your identity, for your security, for that which gives your life meaning and purpose is something that is truly unshakable. If you were trapped in your house and an earthquake was happening, right? You're not supposed to run out in the street, right? I'm I'm not Californian. I don't know what all these, these, well, we'll say it's a hurricane or a tornado because it's North Carolina. We probably have had the only earthquake we're going to have for a while. We hope, right? So, but anyway, if some natural disaster was taking place to threaten your house, what room would you run to? We always joke in our house, after renovating our guest bathroom and installing a ridiculous amount of waterproofing compound and backer board and, and mortaring between all the cracks and everything, that we're just going to go jump in our guest bathtub because we know that it's going to survive Armageddon. So if you want to be safe, just come to our house and we'll all jump in the bathtub and we'll be fine. But, but where in your house, where's the most secure room? Now, let me, let me ask you to go with the metaphor now, okay? In your life, in, in, the, in the house that is your life, where's the most secure room? Where do you run to when everything else is threatened? Where's that interior room? Where is your heart residing? Where do you go? Do you go to your spouse? Do you go to your family? That's good, that's, that's strong, but it's not unshakable. Do you go to your uh, quick thinking, common sense, raw intelligence? 
That might be good, but it's not unshakable. So it's probably not the best idea. Do you go to your financial assets? <clears throat> Let me go back and look at some of these verses in chapter 13 that we skipped. Verse 6 is an awesome verse that you, you didn't know that you knew Hebrews 13, 6, but you did, right? Because that's where it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And who's speaking there? He's quoting Jesus. So do you know that verse? You've heard that verse, right? How many of you have claimed that verse in prayer sometime in your life that God will never leave you or forsake you? How many of you have ever shared that with a, a hurting believer who needed encouragement? He will never leave you or forsake you, right? We do that all the time. That is probably the most popular verse in the entire Bible for the purpose of encouraging other believers. But have you ever noticed the context? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you, leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, what can man do to me? So wait, Pastor, you're telling me that verse is about money? <clears throat> well, it certainly applies to more than that, but yeah, the passage here is about trusting Jesus rather than money. And if you think about it, think about all the terms that we use today in the investment and finance world to refer to places that you can put your money. You know what we call them? Trusts. Securities. Shelters. Right? If I didn't know any better, I think there was a real tendency, especially for those of us who might have some level of wealth, to find our bottom line security in these material resources. And we'll say, you know what? The whole world might be going to pot, but, but at least I have a safety net. At least I'll have some funds in retirement. At least my kids won't starve. And these are not bad things. And yet, you know that there are times when all the money in this world cannot repair a broken relationship or comfort you at the loss of a loved one or add one minute to your life, right? Money will desert you at those times, but Jesus never will. That's what it's saying here. Have you made him your trust? Have you made him your shelter? Have you made him your security? Have you made him your best friend? Have you made Jesus that interior room in your heart so that he's the first person, the first place that you run to when there's a crisis? Or do you go somewhere else first? Let me ask you some tougher questions. When push comes to shove, will you choose Jesus over your reputation, over your safety, over your financial prosperity, over your freedom, over your other relationships, and even over your mortal life? Now that sounds kind of dramatic and over the top, right? And maybe it is, but you know what? Every day, every day there are people in parts of Asia, the Middle East, and Africa, and increasingly in other parts of the world for whom those questions are very real. Because they know what persecution is like, they know what it's like to have nothing for the sake of Jesus, and they know what it means to see everything in their lives shaken and come loose. And I know that those believers probably appreciate verse 8 of chapter 13 even more than we do. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And when we come across this verse, as we're reading it at first, it seems to come out of nowhere, right? I mean, does it connect to the verse before it where it talks about imitating our leaders and passing the faith down to the next generation? Or does it maybe connect to the verse after it, which is about making sure the message of Jesus doesn't get compromised by new strange teachings? And maybe it's both, and maybe it's one or the other. But, but here is at least one message that I think we can definitely glean from that for our church today. And it's this. Do not lose track 
of who Jesus is, of what he has done, and what he has promised. And don't lose sight of the gospel by which you were saved. Because when everything else changes, these things stay the same. They're unshakable. So let me, let me maybe begin to draw us to a close here by just looking a little bit further back into chapter 12. Because chapter 12 is kind of a unit. But let's, let's go back to verse 18. And we're going to hear a little bit more about what happened when God gave the Ten Commandments. And I'm going to read these verses in a little different way because there's an important way in which this differs from what he gave us at the time of Jesus. Verse 18 of Hebrews 12. For you have come not to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and, and a tempest, and to the sound of a trumpet and whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they cannot endure the order that was given. Even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. All right, that was weird, right? But you get the idea? When God spoke to his people at Sinai, it was kind of like that, only a million times crazier, right? And the people were filled with terror. They were filled with fear and insecurity. They wanted to run away. As they encountered the uncompromising holiness of God and it was shaking that mountain, they had to beg God, literally they begged God to stop speaking to them. They said, we can't take it anymore. We'll die. But the second part of the paragraph describes something very different. And it isn't that God's nature has changed. It hasn't. He's still as holy. He's still as intimidatingly perfect as he always was. In fact, he's still a consuming fire. But the atmosphere has changed from one of fear and insecurity to one of peace and assurance and even celebration. Why is that? Well, it's because God has done something different in sending Jesus. And I was always perplexed before by that last verse that we read there, by that strange phrase that said that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Why bring up Abel? I mean, he kind of was mentioned quickly in Hebrews chapter 11, but, but where does Abel fit into this? Well, Genesis chapter 4, most of you know that Abel was the second son of Adam and Eve, and that Cain, the first son of Adam and Eve, killed Abel. And in Genesis chapter 4, it says that when Abel was murdered by his brother Cain, that God heard Abel's blood calling out to him from the ground. Now, what was Abel's blood crying out for? It was crying out for justice. It was crying out for vengeance. It was crying out to, to, for judgment on the one who had sinned against him. And so God responded to that cry by placing a curse on Cain. Now, Jesus' blood, the author is saying here, is also crying out to God. But it's crying for something different. You see, Jesus when he was crucified on that cross outside the gates of the city, he accomplished something that the law never could. He absorbed the judgment for sin onto himself. He satisfied the requirements of a holy God. He, the, he, he, he received the curse of sin 
on himself. And so the blood of Jesus cries out. But it does not cry out for judgment. The blood of Jesus today cries out for mercy because it can. It cries out for forgiveness. It doesn't say, Father, pay them back for what they're doing. No, it says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that blood still cries out today for anyone who is willing to own up to his or her own sin and to run to the shelter that that blood provides. Forgiveness. Reconciliation with God. Eternal life. No more debt. No more enslavement to sin. No more shame. No more guilt. No more judgment. No more fear. Today you can run to the only place that will not be shaken. The only place that will not be shaken is in the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ who died for you. And that blood that cries out for mercy will never lose its power. Jesus Christ is the same back then and now and into eternity. And his promise of forgiveness is forever. And you will not find that kind of peace and confidence anywhere else. That's the only place it's offered. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to just close by reading you a verse from Isaiah that I want you to take with you today. Lord, we, we stand on a shaky earth. <laughs> a lot of things that we thought would always be there might not always be there. A lot of things that we've counted on we found are not as reliable as maybe we thought they were. And Lord, it doesn't mean that, that we don't in some ways rely on our relationships and on uh, the other things in our life that are important to us because they are important to us. And yet, Lord, I, I pray for myself, for everyone else here, that you would enable us to identify the foundation, to identify that interior room that we run to when everything else breaks down to recognize that, that there is no ultimate security in anything else that we can have or, or somehow earn or get or collect, but that only in Jesus Christ is our salvation found, only in Jesus Christ is our eternal peace found. And Lord, I, I pray that indeed that would enable us to be able to live lives that are radically different than the lives that we would live if we were depending on those earthly things. God, we, we struggle to let go of our idols, to let go of, 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 of the things that don't float. <laughs> but Lord, you don't ever sink. And so, Father, I, I just pray that through Jesus and through the, the prompting of your Holy Spirit, you would continue to work in our lives to increase our dependence upon you and enable us to let go of the things that aren't going to last. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to leave you with Isaiah 54.10. And uh, this is a promise for all those who will inhabit the holy city of Zion, which is who the author of Hebrews identifies with all those who trust in Jesus Christ. The verse simply says this, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Go in peace.